Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading the first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And may God bless this very familiar part of Scripture to our understanding, and I underline understanding this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we always run into trouble and difficulty when we have such a familiar passage as this. Uh, we hear it every Christmas. It brings up certain ideas and thoughts in our minds. Lord, we know, though, that Luke, under the influence of your spirit, wrote this with a purpose in mind. There's a message for us, the church, here. There's a communication that so often is lost because of the way that it is presented. And I pray that you will give me the words this morning to bring that out, that we would see what the message is for us. We are the church of Jesus, and I think that there is a definite communication here from you to us, and I just pray, pray that I will be able to bring that out this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, as you, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we are making our way through Luke's nativity story, and now we change focus. Our focus has been on sort of the preliminaries. We've talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and the visit with Mary and Elizabeth, and then we saw the beautiful songs of both Zechariah and, uh, uh, and Mary, um, and now uh, his focus is going to turn from all that to the actual birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what he's going to do is take an opportunity with this part of his gospel to introduce one of his major themes. Now, he's already hinted at it in the first chapter, but we're going to start getting serious about it now. And that is the fact that the King of Heaven has arrived that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. And this kingdom is not like any kingdom that exists on earth. It's upside down. It's backwards. And it's not the way it seems. And that's very much an important part of what Luke wants to tell us this morning is that this kingdom is different from all the kingdoms of the world. That actually all the power of the world and all the kings of the earth are just... Vapor, if you will, in the wind in God's providence because God is bringing his providence out. And brothers and sisters, we should take such great comfort in this because in our humble estate, in the state that we are in, and especially at times that we feel like we're out of control and we have no control over the world around us, it is nice to know that God uses the humble and the small and seemingly weak things of this world to bring about his 
providential change. And that is exactly what we're going to see in Luke's narrative this morning. Now, what I kind of want to show you as far as the context is concerned, because we've got a very extraordinary piece of scripture here. I mean, I'm telling you what, these seven verses, they, they're just amazing. Because if you think about it, think back to what we were talking about last week. Think about the end of Zechariah's song. Let me just read some of those words so that you remember them. He says this at the end of that song, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, what we said is that Zechariah is talking about the most momentous occasion in the history of humanity. This is the culmination of redemptive history. This is the day spring. The light is piercing the darkness and God is finally bringing the solution to sin. Okay, that's what's behind us. Now, what's in front of us is that the heavens are going to open and spill over in celebration because the angels are going to come and start announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we have the glory of heaven announcing the coming of God's Son. And in between, we have this amazing discussion of the birth in the most humble terms. I mean, absolutely the opposite of what you would expect. Everything about these seven verses is bathed in humility and humbleness. And so, brothers and sisters, there, there's, a major, there's a major lesson for us here. Up, upside down, backwards, this is not like the world around us type of message that we need to make sure that we catch. And it is my prayer that I can bring that out for you this morning. So let's jump right into this. And um, we've got quite a bit of text to go through. Thousands of details could be brought out about this. I'm going to have to try to keep it short um, in the way we go through it. So I'm going to read the first three verses together because that just sort of sets the stage for us. When Luke says, in those days, a decree went up from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went up to be registered, each to his own town. Now, what I want you to see is how rich that is in providence, the providence of God. It's history, but this was all brought about by the definite foreknowledge and plan of God the Father. I mean, he is orchestrating this all the way through. In fact, Dr. Sproul points this out. Notice the way that Luke starts this in the first verse. He says, in those days... And Dr. Sproul makes the point, and this is for Christians as well as non-Christians. He doesn't say once upon a time. Okay, so this is not just a bedtime story. It is not just something that you read at Christmas. It is not just a nice, tender story about how the baby Jesus was born and came to earth. Luke is an historian, and he is telling you something that is an historic fact. In fact... Virtually every word that I'm going to read this morning is under attack. It's under contention and has been for hundreds of years. 
Now, it's stood the test of time. I'm really not going to take the time this morning to go in and explain all of the attacks on the facts here. I am going to do it a little bit in the after church. Those of you who don't know what the after church is, it's kind of like a Sunday school, but it's much more interactive, and we really kind of talk about the things that I couldn't cram into the sermon always, and the questions that you have about the sermon. It starts in here right after the message. But nonetheless, there are so many um, um, contentions that scholars have. And, and there's two problems that I have with this. First of all, this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. So therefore, I see it as being the absolute authority of everything. So if I'm going to compare any scientific or historic data, I'm going to compare it to the word of God because I know the word of God is truth. But secondly, I, I, Luke is a great historian. I, I mean, we've seen that. His facts have been under attack for century upon century, and he keeps proving the experts wrong. And if he was anything else but a biblical writer, if he was anything else but a Christian, he would be considered the premier historical um, authoritative history of all in, in the ancient world. But since those who attack him have a vested interest in proving the Bible to be wrong, those attacks will keep on coming. So we're going to accept these as the absolute truths. And again, I'll go in and tell you some of the, their contentions later on. But we, we, we should ask the question anyway, when Luke says, in those days, well, in whose days? Who's he referring to? Mainly, probably Herod. If you, would, if you go back to the first chapter, the fifth verse, Luke starts this out by saying, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Well, now he says, in those days. Now, what that does is it sort of brings a comparison between the king he's going to mention next, Caesar Augustus, and the king he mentioned before, Herod the Great. And it's kind of like the bottom of the barrel and the top of the barrel. Uh, it's really two extremes there. Now, that's not the major comparison here. The major comparison is going to be between Caesar Augustus and Christ. But there's also this sort of tension between um, uh, Herod the Great, who was really a beast uh, of, of, a, of a leader, and Caesar Augustus. And, and I was surprised at something as I was preparing for this. As I read through the various scholars and commentators that I read, um, I was surprised at the amount of space that they were giving to the life and history of Caesar Augustus. I, I, mean, I never considered that. I mean, he's just the, the guy who happened to be the emperor at the time. But I realize now that he, he's important to Luke's narrative. In fact, the whole tone of this part of his narrative is founded on who Caesar Augustus was. And simply put, Caesar Augustus was probably the finest ruler that the earth has ever produced, the finest one to sit on a throne anywhere at any time. Uh, he was very unlike um, other rulers, uh, to where he was actually tried to instill some degree of morality, not in his own life, but in his rule and in the way that he formed Rome. He is credited by many with being the father of the Roman Empire. Now, he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, and you may remember Julius Caesar was murdered in the forum, but before he was killed, he named Caesar Augustus. By the way, he was born Gaius Octavius. 
In the English world, we know him as Octavian. But he, he was a, a appointed by Julius Caesar to be his successor. Now, of course, at that time, Rome was sort of a collection of uh, feudal states, if you will, and lots of military leaders fighting each other. And so um, uh, Caesar Augustus, or Octavian, showed that he was ruthless, as many other great leaders are, as he rose to power. He eliminated his contenders one by one, finally in the decisive naval battle against Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he pretty much solidified it. Both Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide, leaving Octavian in absolute, complete control. Now, much of what we know as the Roman Empire was actually due to Caesar Augustus because he himself said, I took Rome as a brick and I left it as marble. He's the one who took these military states and brought them together in the one monolithic worldwide empire that we know Rome to be. Unlike other leaders, um, uh, he, he, when he gained complete authority and complete rule and fabulous wealth, he, he didn't turn like Nero or Caligula or any of the other just moral reprobates. As I said, he actually brought out, not in his own life, so don't get me wrong, I'm not deifying this guy. I mean, he was like any other heathen or pagan. He had an immoral personal life. But he was a good administrator. He cared about his people. He cared about Rome. And he created things that existed for, for, for decades Things that would later on providentially be essential to the spread of the gospel, like the Pax Romana. I mean, he was the one who brought that Roman peace about. And, and for years, there was a peace in the land because Rome was so powerful, and that peace is what allowed the gospel to be spread to the four corners of the known world. He also was very responsible for building the Roman roads. It was on those roads that the apostles would travel as they scattered out around the world to tell people about Jesus. So the point that I want to make here is this, two points. First of all, as far as what the earth has to offer, the kings of the earth, as the Bible refers to them, Octavian or Caesar Augustus is just about the cream of the crop. So if you're going to compare the, the, the king of kings now, the new king that's coming, and when the king arrives, you're going to compare him against the best. The second thing we want to see is how God has used this man in Rome, separate completely from the events going on in Palestine, how he has providentially used him to bring his will about. God uses the good and the bad. He uses believers and unbelievers. He uses people to accomplish his will. Sometimes he does it supernaturally, but quite often he does it through the outworking of those that he has ordained to be in power. And certainly Caesar Augustus is that person. Now, we are going to make a comparison. Here's the comparison I want you to see. Because when we talk about Jesus, we know who Jesus is, right? We know that he's the king of kings. We know that he is the king of heaven and that he is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now, no one else knows this because wouldn't you think that when God brought his king, it would have been to a man like 
Caesar Augustus. I mean, he's already the most powerful man in the world. He's already got a huge kingdom. He is wealthy beyond belief, and people do whatever he tells them to do. Wouldn't you think that God would bring his Messiah, his king, into that kind of environment? But he goes to the farthest extreme. And that's what I want you to see about this narrative. This is nothing but humility and humbleness. I mean, there's purposeful humbleness that is being expressed to us here. They have the great and the small. And what we're going to see about the kingdom of heaven is that the great becomes small and the small become great. That true power, true dominion, true influence is not to be found in the perfect example of an earthly king, but in a child born in an obscure place to to peasant parents and laid in a manger. This is how upside down the kingdom of heaven actually is. And we're going to try to find out what indeed the message that he has for us there is. Well, anyway, let's continue on. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. His decree was that all the world, that's just all the Roman Empire, will be registered. Now, that's the proper translation. The word actually means to register or to enroll. The New American Standard in the NIV have told us what kind of registration that is. They use the word census, and that is very accurate because this was indeed a census that he called for. The King James famously tells us what that census was about when it says, in all the world to be taxed. The Romans would do a census for a couple of reasons. One was to to perform, to make up the tax rolls, and that's what's going on now. So they know the people that are living in every area so that they can keep records of their taxation. But the second reason they would do a census was to identify where the young males lived who were of military age because they would press them into service. And herein we see the core of the strength of the Roman Empire and the brilliance of Caesar Augustus. Because it was through their military that they would overwhelm a country. And then they would exact taxes out of that country. And they would take the young men from that country, move them to another country, make them soldiers, pay them well so that they can raise more taxes. And that just kept going on and on. And that is why Rome was such a powerful empire. lasted for, as I said, for centuries. Um, And... The father of all that was indeed Caesar Augustus. So this is what the registration is. It's a registration that everyone would indeed um, be called to, um, uh, to, to do this census. Now, notice that we hear a little bit more details about that in the next one. This was the first registration that Quirinius was governor of registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Every single word in that sentence is under attack. Every single word is contested by modern scholars. 
If you're interested to know what their, what their thoughts are, come around to the after church because I will explain. They, they question the date. They question Quirinius. They, I mean, every, they question whether or not uh, Caesar Augustus ever gave a census. I, I mean, everything is under attack. And every time they attack Luke, whether it's in his gospel or in the book of Acts, you know what happens, don't you? People get converted when they start trying to tear Luke down because his, his, his details are so exact. He was such a great historian. So forgive me if I don't go in and explain why I think this is true. It is the word of God, and I trust Luke as an historian, and those are good enough for me. But anyway, during the time that Quirinius was a public servant, and I'll explain that in the after church. Um, that's when this particular census was given. All the world should be taxed. Now look at the third verse. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now I know that doesn't seem like a very important verse, but it's actually when we talk about the providence of God, it's huge. Because, you you see, the requirement, and of course this is under contesting too, contesting too, but the requirement was that you didn't register where you lived, but you went to the home of your ancestry to register there. Now, why is that important? Well, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes, who's a good man, we hear, and he's living in Nazareth, and his betrothed is... I don't know, eight months pregnant, almost nine months pregnant. She's going to deliver at any time. And you decide to take her from Nazareth 70 to 90 miles, depending on which route they take, over rough terrain, maybe in the heat of summer, maybe in the rainy season, we don't know, with robbers and bandits the whole way along. You're going to take your wife, who is about to deliver a child, to Bethlehem. Well, there's no way he's going to do that. No one would do that. He'd say, wait, you know, I need to go to Bethlehem, but let's, let's deliver the baby and, and, and get a safe delivery, and, and then we will go. So what would force him to do that? It was the decree of Caesar Augustus, and God begins to work out his plans. Why was it essential that Mary deliver the child in Bethlehem? Well, most of you know, because God said that's where it would be centuries before. God said without question in the the prophet Micah in the fifth chapter, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, Ephratah is an ancient name for Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans. Of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So God has already said, My Messiah, my Christ, will be born in Bethlehem. And so it took an emperor in Rome to make a decree that you had to go back to your ancestral home to get Joseph to take Mary to Bethlehem so that the Christ can be born where God said that he would be born. Brothers and sisters, that's providence. That is God using the events of history and people to bring about his will. And that is exactly what he did. 
Um, and uh, uh, so that's what the importance of that town. Now, I mean, of that verse, now let's go to the fourth verse. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Just absolutely packed full of important information. First of all, it gives us the path or, or the route that they took from Nazareth to um, Bethlehem. If, if you look at a map and you can visualize the Sea of Galilee, if you go to the, uh, the southern tip of that and then just draw a straight line straight across, well, you would run almost through Nazareth to the west. Nazareth is near the southern end of, or, or level with the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. So more than likely, they would have gone east just underneath the Sea of Galilee, crossed the Jordan River there, and then gone down the eastern side of the Jordan River. Why did they do that? Because no Jew wanted to go through Samaria, which was on the western side. So they almost always crossed over, took the eastern route down, and then when they reached Jericho, they would cross back over, make the trip um, to Jerusalem. Now that is probably why Luke says that they went up from Galilee, from Galilee to um, Jerusalem because wherever you went to Jerusalem, you always went up. Just look at it. Almost always, wherever you see they're going to Jerusalem, it's always they went up to Jerusalem. We would look at a map, and Nazareth is here and Jerusalem is here. We would say, well, they went down to Jerusalem, but no. Two reasons. Once, one is that there was an increase in elevation. Jerusalem is built on top of the Moriah Mountains. But mainly it's because Jerusalem was the holy city. And spiritually speaking, you always went up to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And that is where God met the, his people, or at least at one time did. So that's the reason they would always say that. And so they more than likely came to Jerusalem, through Jerusalem, about five miles to the southwest, to the little town of Bethlehem. Appropriately named, because Bethlehem simply means the, the, the house of bread, and there's fertile rolling hills around there. Bethlehem itself is, is kind of on a ridge. But there's fertile ground. They grow corn and wheat and barley. So it's kind of a bread basket. But the reason I say it, it was appropriately named, that's a good place for the bread of life right, to be born. And that's, of course, who Jesus was. Now, you, you hear more about Bethlehem in the Old Testament than you actually do in the New Testament. New Testament is pretty much uh, the Gospels and the birthplace of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, several things actually happened there. You go back to the book of Judges in the 17th chapter, some very eyebrow-raising events went on with some Levites there in um, the town of Bethlehem. It, of course, was the place that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried by the road there in Bethlehem. It is the place that Boaz and Ruth settled down and bore their son Obed, who bore his son Jesse, who bore his son David, the king. And that's the reason that Luke calls this town the city of David. Now, interestingly... 
and I didn't do a real thorough search on here, so I don't want to say that this, I really checked this out. But basically, this is the only place that I could find in the Bible where Bethlehem is referred to as the city of Bethlehem. Forty-five times the city, I'm sorry, the city of David is referred to in the Old Testament, but almost every time that I could find at points to Jerusalem, because that was the city of David. But Luke here tells us about Bethlehem as the city of David to drill home the fact that we are seeing covenants fulfilled here, that there is a connection between the Christ child being born here and David the king. David, of course, was a type of Jesus, and David's kingdom was a type of the kingdom of heaven. That is why it is so essential of what we read at the end of that verse, that Joseph went to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And once again, this is something that I'll bring out in the after church. I think most of you know how essential it was according to the prophets of old and going all the way back to the time of Judah when Jacob made his blessing of Judah. It's absolutely essential not only that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that he was of the house and lineage of David because the prophets have been saying so for centuries or four centuries before when the prophets were actually writing. And so therefore, this is the fulfillment of all those covenants we talked about in the first chapter, both in Mary's song and in Zechariah's song, when God promises David that he will always have one of his descendants upon the throne. Well, Jesus is that king, and he has finally arrived. And he's arrived in the city of David, bringing all of that together. Well, let's go on to um, the sixth verse. Because uh, to be registered with Mary, I'm sorry, the fifth verse. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Another source of contention, and that is whether Mary was required to be with Joseph for its particular census. Well, we know that it is. We know that there's no possible way that that he's going to leave her at home at this time. It wouldn't work. Um, And the question is why? Why would Joseph, a good man, force his wife, take his wife on this dangerous, arduous trip in the condition that she is in? Well, I, I, I love the way that Leon Morris puts this. He's one of the scholars that I read. He puts it this way. God directed a pagan in Rome and the wagging tongues of gossip in Nazareth to accomplish his will. Now, there's more reasons than that that Joseph took Mary along, but those are two huge ones. First of all, the providential work of God through Caesar Augustus. We've already talked about that. But then there were the wagging tongues of gossip. There was such animosity in Nazareth against both Joseph and Mary. You know that Mary was unmarried in the sense that she had never been with the man. She was still a virgin when she delivered Christ. And so therefore, when she was pregnant, everyone, yeah, right, the Holy Spirit, no one believed her. So she immediately had a terrible stigma against her. And the fact that Joseph 
didn't divorce her, didn't make a huge deal about it, makes him suspect number one as being the father. So there's all this talking going on and wagging of the tongues in Nazareth, and there's no way that Joseph is going to leave Mary there to face that alone. So Mary ends up here in in uh, Bethlehem, and that, of course, is where she is going to deliver the child. And then we read in the sixth verse, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they're in Bethlehem, while, and we're, we don't know how long it is, and, and all of the movies and things you see that show them coming in while she's in labor, we don't know that. They might have been there a week before she delivered. But while they were there registering in Bethlehem, the time came for her to deliver her son. Now, now that time designation, I, I kind of take that two ways. On the one hand, it's just the normal gestation or gestation period of a human child. It's about nine months. And when the child's ready to come, pretty much the child comes, or at least I'm told um, that that's what, that's what happens. And so the time came for Mary to deliver the child. She went into labor. That would be the normal way of that occurring. But I, I also want you to see that this is not just Mary's time. This is God's time, folks. I mean, going back to what Zechariah said in that 78th and 79th verse that we read earlier, this is the most significant event in all of human history. This is the culmination of God's redemptive plan, the answer to the curse that he put on the serpent at the time of the the exile from the garden. I mean, this is the pivotal time in human history. So it's not just Mary's time has come, that God's time has come for the child to be born. Now, I want to go back to something I said earlier before we go on to the seventh verse, because I find this verse just totally extraordinary. I want to remind you of what I said earlier, that we're nestled here in between two powerful passages. Zechariah talks about the day spring of the wild ox of salvation, the horn of salvation. He talks about the sunrise from on high. He talks about what I just said, the culmination of all redemptive history. And then next we are going to see the angels erupt and literally heaven cannot hold the joy. And they're going to come out to announce the coming of the Jesus. And so the most important birth that ever occurred in human history, Luke is about to... Tell us, 7th verse, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. That's the total numbers of words that he has to describe to describe the birth of Jesus Christ. No trumpets, no angels, no lights, no nothing. I mean, there would have been fireworks and excitement and parades and everything going on in Rome if, if, if Caesar Augustus had a son. It would have been announced around the world. But here, all Luke says is, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. As few words as he could think of. Now, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. This is purposeful. This didn't happen by accident. 
It's not like Luke got tired one night and this was the line he had to write before he went to sleep. And so he just wrote a simple line and woke up the next morning, was feeling good and told us all about the angels coming. That's not what happened. This is purposeful. Why on earth would Luke use so few words to tell us about the birth of the most important child in the history of humanity? Two reasons I can think of. One, because he wants this, he wants you to see purposefully that this is a humble, lowly, insignificant as far as the world is concerned, obscure birth of just a child. And that that humbleness is of the greatest importance in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that's upside down, the kingdom that is not like it seems. That humbleness is the greatest virtue in this kingdom. Secondly, he wants to show a normal human birth. Because actually that's what it was. A normal human birth. Probably a teenage girl giving birth to a baby boy in the way that millions upon millions of women have given birth to children throughout the history of the world. There's nothing humanly special about Mary. It was simply a human birth. And in fact, I think Luke underlines that. There's one adjective in this sentence. In a sentence that he goes out of his way to make as plain and as few words as he possibly can, he adds one adjective. Firstborn. It was her firstborn son. Now, there's a perfectly good word in the Greek language for only son. Luke uses it quite often in both his gospel and in the book of Acts. So he could have easily said, if this was her only son, he could have easily said, then Mary gave birth to her only son. But he doesn't. He says her firstborn. Now, when you say a firstborn, it implies that there's a secondborn and a thirdborn, if you will. In other words, it's the first in a sequence. And certainly that's what the gospels tell us. Reading from the book of Mark, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joes and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? I mean, there was a whole brood. So my point is this, that the myth of the perpetual virginity of Mary is just that. It's a myth. It is not founded on any fact anywhere, not in scripture nor in history. And and the way the Roman Catholic uh, exegetes explain this is, oh, well, all of those kids must have been from the previous marriage of Joseph. Really? Where does it tell you that Joseph was married before this? Where does it tell you that he had any? Nowhere. Not in Scripture nor in history. So in other words, I think Luke, even though he might not have known this terrible heresy that has evolved around Mary worship, in Roman Catholicism, that the Holy Spirit knew it would be there. And so he definitively said that she's not a perpetual virgin, that she had a lot of children after Jesus, and they were raised in a houseful of folks. 
Well, anyway, uh, the, 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 the main focus here is on that real simple, um, uh, a humble birth that Luke wants to make sure we see. There's some other details here. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This, or in the end. Well, this has probably captured the imagination of the Christian community throughout the years uh, like no other verse in, uh, in the whole nativity story in all four Gospels has because we see, uh, we, we visualize this in our minds. Unfortunately, most of, I think, of what we visualize probably is wrong. So let me just explain a couple of things here. First of all, the swaddling cloths. In our mind, what we see is a newborn baby just born being put in a towel or a rag or something and laid in a manger. That's not exactly what swaddling cloths were. They were strips of fabric and they had a function. In other words, the baby would be snugly tied up in these cloths. And the reason was to give him a sense of security, to keep him warm, and I am told to keep the limbs straight so that at that crucial time of his life that the limbs would be straight in that way. So there was a purpose in the swaddling cloths and it was a time of tenderness and intimacy for the mother and and for those who were there. In other words, just a snapshot, uh, and we don't know what it looks like, whether it was just Mary and Joseph, whether there's a whole bunch of people in the room, we, we really don't know what, what it looks like, but there was a moment of tenderness. This is a snapshot of a tender moment, because to wrap that child carefully and lovingly in those cloths and then lay the child aside, that was something that was special. And, and it brings up a point, brothers and sisters. Yet, Jesus was born poor. Yes, he was born obscure. Yes, he was born humble. But he was not unloved. He was dearly loved by his mother Mary. He was dearly loved by his earthly father Joseph. But oh, how he was loved by his heavenly father who oversaw all of this. Jesus knew love. And he knew it both in his earthly and his heavenly father. And so he could teach us what it was like to be a human who was loved. Even if we in our human experience have not experienced love. That our Lord knows what love is and is filled with it to pour it out on us. Well, after he was wrapped in the swaddling cloths, he was laid in a manger. And quite often we say, ah, he was born in a manger. Well, actually he wasn't. He was born in a place where animals were, a stable or a stall or a cave. But quite often that structure is referred to as a manger because there's a manger in it. A manger, and the reason this is important is it's just right in line with this humility or the humbleness of this birth. (laughs) A manger is a place where food went for animals. It was either made out of wood or sometimes if it was a cave, it was hewn out of the rock. Not the most sterile environment. It was where cattle and horses with all of their saliva came to eat whatever it was that they ate. And this is where the king of heaven was laying. Okay, in a, in a trough where animals ate. Later on, Jesus is going to say that birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the 
Son of man has no place to lay his head. He never had a place to lay his head, brothers and sisters. He was born and laid in a manger. He, was di- he died and was laid in someone else's tomb. Man, you talk about the picture of humbleness. Jesus was all about the most humble human being that you can imagine. He was laid in a manger. And why was he laid in a manger? Well, you know this. Because there was no room for them in the end. Once again, I think we have perhaps maybe the wrong image in our minds. We think about a street in, in Bethlehem and a busy like a little motel, you know, there on the side of the street. The door is open, and the inside you can hear raucous behavior and music, and everybody's drinking and eating and have a good time. There's a roaring fire, and here's this cruel innkeeper at the door sending this poor couple away into the darkness. There's no place for you in this inn. Well, that's probably not the way it looked. I'm not going to say that wasn't the way that it looked, but more than likely it wasn't because an inn in those days was more like the difference between a motel and a truck stop, okay? An inn was like a place where caravans would stop, people who were passing through. And so the inn would be an accommodation for basically three entities, people, animals, and cargo. All three of them needed to be kept in the end because you were not going to travel from one place to another like a whole caravan full of camels and leave those heavy burdens on the camels as you rested for a week. You take them off. So there's got to be a place of storage. So typically an end would be maybe a stone structure. They're built around a central um, Um, a courtyard where the animals and the cargo would stay and people would stay in the rooms or maybe up on the roof. Sometimes they were two stories and the servants and the animals and the cargo would be on the ground floor and the people would sleep on the second floor and on the roof when it got busy or when it was hot. Sometimes if it was out of town, there was a wall structure around it and a freestanding building and that's where the people would sleep. Now, as far as sleeping accommodations, they didn't typically have rooms. You didn't book a room in these. You found an empty spot on the floor, and you brought your own blanket, and and that's where it was. I mean, so when there's no room in the inn, that means that every single square inch in that inn, both inside and on the roof, had a body in it. There really was no place for them to stay. So... Why was that the case? By the way, it's probably just a single end. Luke uses the, the um, singular here, and more than likely, a place like Bethlehem would only have a single end. Well, th- there's two explanations. The, the traditional explanation is that, that it was so jam-packed with people coming from all over the Roman world to register in their hometown of Bethlehem. So, therefore, they, they a lot of people there for the registration, and so, therefore, the hotel was packed. That might have been the case, and, and, and I'm not going to contend that. But there's another explanation that, at least to me, makes actually even more sense. And that's that, if you think about it, There's this census, there's this registration that is going to have to take place. Well, there's going to have to be a Roman 
contention in order to make that happen. So there's going to have to be clerks and bookkeepers to keep the records. There's going to have to be officials to oversee those records. There's going to have to be a contingent of soldiers to make sure that there is order. So there's a little group of Romans who have to find a place to stay. You think they're going to bivouac outside of town in their tents? That's not the way it worked. They took the best place they could find in town, which would have been the local inn. So more than likely, the inn was full of Romans. And no self-respecting Jew is going to eat and drink with a Roman, right? Remember the Sanhedrin? Uh, they wouldn't even walk into Pilate's house for fear they would be defiled. So therefore, it's not, it wouldn't be just Joseph and Mary who didn't have a place at the end. It would be none of the Jews would have a place at the end. And so therefore, they were probably staying in the place that was meant for animals. And more than likely... They weren't alone. Now, they might have been, but more than likely they weren't. More than likely, a lot of people are staying in there where the animals were. Not a lot of privacy to deliver your child. But once again, just by putting all those details together, you can see the extraordinary humility. There's such a humbleness that goes with this. It's just hard to express it. So let's kind of back up from the text because that's, the, that's the, the fullness of it. And let's ask ourselves some questions. What, what do we do with this text? How, how do we put this together with what precedes it and what follows it? And what is the purpose that Luke has in writing this kind of a story? Well, first of all, it's how most of us remember this story. And that is as a description of how Jesus was born. That's the reason we read it every Christmas. I mean, how many times have you read this story at Christmas time? And usually in the King James Version, because that's what Charlie's Brown Christmas did. You know, I mean, seriously, even non-believers have heard this over and over and over and over again. And so therefore, we, we don't dig deeper and try to see, well, this is God's word, and what on earth did Luke mean? Well, the first thing is just to tell us that Jesus was indeed, um, the king has arrived, and, and to tell us how that happened in some details, leaving a lot of details out. Secondly, as we have discussed, it is to emphasize purposefully the fact that this was a humble birth. This was a human birth, some obscure, almost peasant uh, a couple under the worst conditions as far as they are concerned to bring about a normal human son who is anything but normal. But there is a message to us. What is the message? What do you think? Why would he go into this and why would he express this? What is the message to you and to me? Well, it's quite simple, brothers and sisters. Humbleness, humility is one of the greatest virtues in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is exactly opposite to the kingdom of this world. In this world, it's those who succeed, those who are great, those who are arrogant, those who are successful. We all look at them and we say, wow, that's the pinnacle of success. In the kingdom of heaven, it's exactly opposite. The virtue in the kingdom of heaven is humility. The lack of virtue is pride. It's the opposite. And don't take my word for it. <laughs> Scripture is full of these discussions that humility is the supreme value of the kingdom. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. 
Proverbs 29. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 18. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. 2 Corinthians 12, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, what a powerful statement that is. What a, it explains what I'm trying to get across. When I'm weak... When I'm small, when I'm nothing to this world, then I'm at my strongest. Because power is to be found in that which is humble. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, this is a smattering. I could be here all morning reading to you from God's message to you that what you see out there, what you've been raised and taught is backwards in the kingdom of heaven. It's the low, it's the humble, it's the servant who is great in God's kingdom. Jesus said it of himself when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. That's what Luke's trying to get across to us by this Humble birth of our king. Yeah, the king arrives. But look at the way that he arrives. And the third message that I pick out of this, first is just to tell us how Jesus was born. Second is to tell us that that was a humble birth. And third is to explain to us that Caesar Augustus is not where it is, folks. (laughs) It's the babe in a manger, lying in that manger. That's... Power, dominion, rule, strength is to be found in the babe in a manger and not Caesar Augustus, who is the pinnacle of the kings that the earth has been able to produce. And you say, well, wait a minute. I'm not quite sure I get the the association here. I mean, how are you drawing such an association between Caesar Augustus? And I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I didn't. I, I read this. I mean, I realized this after studying for this, this message. That there is a tie-in between the two of them. Do you remember back in the first chapter when the angel was telling Mary that she was going to bear a child even though she was a virgin? And the angel said, he will be great, the son of God most high. And you remember when Zechariah was talking about his son's place in redemptive history and he said, you will be the prophet of the most high, of God most high. And we talked about the fact that both times, that's, an, uh, that's a, a Greek word there, but it points to the Hebrew name for God, El Elyon. And El Elyon means supreme, sublime, majestic, the greatest God, the God above whom there is no other. Well, that's exactly what the word Augustus means. That's exactly it. That just happens to be Latin. You see, that's not his name. His name was Octavius. And it was the Roman descendant who said, no, you're Caesar. That just means king or Pharaoh. Caesar Augustus, the majestic one, the sublime one, the supreme one, the one above whom there is no other. Boy, the Jews were panicked 
when they were told they had to serve that man. Because those were words that were blasphemous when applied to a human being. Now, we have Caesar Most High and we have God Most High. We have Caesar in a palace in Rome with absolute complete control over all peoples on earth. One of the most powerful and beneficial and good administrators as far as rulers are concerned that the earth has ever produced. And now you have this baby lying in a manger. But the kingdom of heaven is not the way it seems, folks. Because he has the power. He has the strength he has the, 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 the changing of all humanity. And that is where strength is. Not in the great because in the kingdom of heaven the great becomes small. And in the kingdom of heaven the small become great. Once again, don't take my word for it. First Samuel, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Psalm 2, we've referred to this many times. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 47, we read this earlier. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 89, talking of Jesus, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth. Man, if it was, you would have seen fireworks. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this earth. In the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, everything is upside down. Now here's what I want you to remember about the third thing, the power. Is that God's definition of power and might and control is totally different than the world's definition of power and might and control. And the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, that is upon you. And the king who has arrived is founded on God's perspective on power and might and dominion. Not the world's. So the world is upside down as far as that is concerned. And that, I believe, is truly what Luke is telling us. So what do we take with us? What is your lesson? You don't hear me talk about takeaways. You know, a lot of pastors talk about, well, here's your takeaway for today. I would hope your takeaway would be everything I've said. Uh, not, not one little thing that we're going to talk about at the end. But there's some things that I think that we should, we should all be comprehending or, or, or thinking about as we leave this morning. First of all, quite simply... The king of heaven has arrived. Serve him. Worship him. Exalt him. With your life, with your obedience, with your words, with your deeds, with what you think and do. He is the king of heaven and he has arrived. Secondly, the king of heaven has come with purposeful humility to teach you that in God's kingdom humbleness is a virtue. In fact, it's one of the supreme virtues. 
that the more humble you are, the greater you are in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that himself. And thirdly, thirdly is simple, simply that in this humble estate, you will find true power. And so therefore, rather than seeking power, we should seek that humble estate. And you know something, it's this last one that I think is so very poignant. Uh, there, there, there's something that bothers me. It's been bothering me for quite some time, a little over a year now. And, and, and it's more or less a tone that I pick up. I pick it up here in this church. I, I pick it up from what people say, and I pick it up from what they do. I pick it up from the writings of other Christian leaders around the world. I pick it up from just what I read in, in the news sometimes. That there's, that there's almost this feeling within Christendom, within the Christian church, that somehow God has gone silent. That, that somehow he's the deistic God and he's just left, you know. Because I hear people saying things like, God, are you not paying attention? This country, this world that we live in, it's gone crazy. It's upside down. People are rioting and burning in the streets and they're destroying all the institutions of marriage and the family and everything that holds this country together. All of a sudden, Lord, it's like you just forgot us. And they question the power of God. And I hear people saying things like, we got to get it back again. We've got to get our people in, in, in the political realm. I don't care whether you're for this administration or the past administration. Both sides were saying the same thing. we got to get this group out and another group in. Because if we can get another group in, then we can finally get power back where it belongs. Folks, that's not where power is. And that's not the lesson that we have before us. Power is not in politics. It is not in the culture. It is not in the day-to-day life that you live. Power is in the babe in a manger. It is in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And that is the only place we're going to find power. And if you want to be a powerful church or a powerful Christian, then pursue Him. Because He is power. And that's what He calls us to do. So what are you going to do? I ask you. You're going to run around like Chicken Little? The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Oh, the world's not like it used to be. Or is she going to get about the work of the kingdom, folks? The resolute, faithful, believing work of the kingdom. And you know what that work is? It's real simple. You simply go out there and you tell people, the king of heaven has arrived. Oh, dear Lord, I hope that that's a different look at this very familiar nativity story. I I hope that we can pull out of it Luke's theme that's going to continue out throughout this book. Oh, man, as Christians, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop looking to other places for power. We've got to realize that your kingdom is different and we are subjects of your, of your kingdom and we're different. We need to be different. What an opportunity we have in the church to be the church of Jesus Christ right now. Lord, help us be that. Help us shine like that light. Sometimes I think it's easier to be under a barrel and that doesn't mean just hiding our light. What it means is to, to seek for solutions in other places than the manger Probably in a cave, on a cold night, where two people who are just 
other humans bring the King of Heaven into this world in the flesh. And dear Lord, we know that has made all the difference. We pray that everyone who hears this, that you will work in their hearts to show them that that is the difference. The true power, true salvation, true might, true honor, true glory. It's only in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.